Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, in chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with all of you here today. If you've been following along in, our, in your order of worship, which I know you all are doing, you might have thought that we decided to play liturgical hopscotch with the uh, role assignments. Uh, but what we're really doing today is that Reverend Longbonds cannot be with us uh, in this worship this morning. And so thank you for staying with us as we're all trying to be agile on our feet. And Dr. Longbonds actually sent a letter uh, that he would like for me to read to all of you. Uh, and so here are his words to all of you. Dear Peachtree Christian family, I'm so disappointed that I cannot be with you today. My father, who is immunocompromised, discovered that he contracted COVID-19. Thank the good Lord and thanks to the researchers that produced this vaccine so quickly because he's doing really well. Thank you for your prayers for our family. But since my dad lives in our home, we had to do the responsible action and inform our children's schools. Under doctor's orders, we are currently quarantined until we test negative for COVID. Pray for us as we all get tested tomorrow as a family. Clearly, the COVID cases are skyrocketing, and the Delta variant is extremely challenging for those who work to keep us healthy. I am told that the hospitals are filling up, and that we're going to hear of patients who will be treated at the World Congress Center. It is because of this that I encourage wisdom and caution. I encourage you to wear masks and spread out in our sanctuary during worship. Please also consider utilizing the 9 a.m. service so that we can spread out even more safely. Take care of yourself and take care of one another. We are all God's children. I love you and know that we are still in this together. We will get through this together. God has so much in store for our shared future. Of this I have great hope, grace, and peace, Pastor Jared. Well, thank you all, and now will you please join with me in prayer. Abiding God, we believe that you are with us in us, and that because of this, we are called to be found in you. This morning, as we are gathered here in this place, our thoughts are many, our prayers are many. We know those who are hurting and suffering. In all of this, we ask and pray what we know and believe to be true, that you would be with your people. May you provide and supply a peace that goes beyond an ability to understand 
May your hope be true and real in our hearts and on our lips. May you be with us and may we find comfort in all of this. And now may these words that were written in haste and may all our prayers and thoughts, our meditations together as your people, may it bring honor and glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The American philosopher Philip Haley famously pointed out that children will either learn hospitality or selfishness from the grown-ups in their lives. Children are taught to either resent or include. In Halley's words, quote, If all we do for our children is pound into their heads reasons for protecting their own hides, their second nature will be as wide as the confines of their own skins. One's life is usually about as wide as one's love. But if we make the often impractical great virtues, for example, compassion and generosity, part of their lives, their second nature will be as wide as their love. Halley sums up by saying, you must be what you are trying to teach. This morning, we remain in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. In verses 51 through 58, Jesus tells his disciples, My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. To be clear, even this passage names the fact that this sounds strange and hard to grasp. John records the obvious question floating over Jesus' words, noting that some disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Historically, those on the outside of Christianity have sometimes taken this passage about eating flesh as off-putting, to say the least. Reverend Bell, on more than one occasion, has shared with me an early encounter he had with Dr. Burns, Peachtree's senior minister from 1930 until 1970. Dr. Burns implored Jim, the brand new music minister, not to program songs that sang of blood. Dr. Burns waved his finger back and forth and said, it's a gruesome metaphor. But here we are reading Jesus' words about flesh and blood. These words might seem even more grotesque in our increasingly sanitized world. I actually wrote a different introduction for this sermon that went far too down the rabbit trail about the history of blood oaths and about how they've been used throughout history to pledge unwavering loyalty and solidarity regardless of circumstance or time. I polled my household yesterday about famous blood oaths from fiction and film, and this was a phenomenon that seemed new to my son. He, he crinkled his nose and said, what, blood? It was easy to read his face. The thought of a blood oath was unsanitary, painful, foolish, and medically suspect. I think he'd agree with Dr. Burns, it's gruesome. 
If we're not careful, though, we can spin our wheels here and miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Receiving the communion bread and cup isn't something to be weird about. It's not gruesome or grotesque. Instead, in John's gospel, it's a reminder of the nearness of God. John, time and again in his gospel, writes that the closeness of God that we have, we discover in and through Jesus. I love the message rendering of John chapter 1 verse 14 that puts it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In many ways, that's what we discover in John chapter 6. God abides. The distance between God and humanity isn't just bridged by Christ, it's obliterated altogether. God is near. God is with the people. Jesus hangs out with humanity. The reader of John's gospel is taught this valuable lesson at the table. Notably today, we should consider what it means for God to abide in us and for us to abide in God. In part, I think it means that we are a people who carry the abiding presence and perspectives of God with us as we go about our everyday lives. The communion meal is where we are reminded that the priorities and purposes of God need to enter into our lives. What we behold in the flesh and blood of Jesus is a way of living and loving and hoping that we need to consume and become. Halley said it this way about the formation of children, you must be what you are trying to teach. We should just as quickly be able to say at the communion table when considering the formation of the Christian life, you must be what you are trying to teach and preach. The life, death, and resurrection hope of Jesus must get into us, into our hearts, into our thoughts, our words, our dreams, and into our everyday self-giving actions. In the Eucharist, we are reminded that the way of Jesus should be our way too. The communion meal allows us to behold and sense the world as God does. We are invited to realize the goodness, the creative potential, and the possibility for hope, wholeness, and transformation in every place and in every person we encounter. Understanding what John is getting at requires us to think about what it means for the bread of life to abide and stay within us. One of my seminary professors, Norman Wurzba, has observed that physiologically, we do not really abide with our food because in the eating of our food, we destroy it. He goes on to detail that by calling Jesus the bread of life, John's gospel is introducing people to a kind of eating in which abiding is possible and transformative. To eat the bread of life is not to absorb and thereby abolish this bread, but to be altered by it. Wurzbuck concludes, Jesus continues to live on in me, not as deformed matter, but as a food that informs and reforms my life from the inside. This is eating founded on mutual abiding. Participating in this meal signifies a reordering of our sensibilities, 
and our relationships. Christ's flesh and blood become part of us with the effect that the old patterns of exclusion, violence, and injustice are replaced with the new practices of welcome, hospitality, and service. What Wiersbe is naming is that our eating the Eucharist meal teaches us to abide with God so that we can then abide with others. Thus, we are to be transformed for the better so that we can be part of changing the world and the people around us for the better too. In part, our eating together ought to shape our relationships. We are taught at the table how to give of our lives in ways that are both sacrificial and loving. A vital Eucharistic lesson is that we not only encounter God, but also our neighbors as well at the table. We are to be knit together with both God and each other every time we eat the bread and drink the cup. I think it's also worth pointing out that eating almost always involves us in a dynamic social process. For example, eating bread requires the investment and involvement of others. Grain must be grown, transformed into flour, baked into bread, and then shared. I was mindful of eating as a social process at breakfast yesterday while eating homemade pancakes topped with homemade blueberry sauce. Years ago, a blueberry bush was planted in the green space here at Peachtree by Dr. Longbonds and some of the children. Uh, this year's blueberry crop was handpicked and washed by Mai. Uh, the blueberries were then taken and taken into a sauce by Reverend Stone, who kindly gave them to me and to the rest of the staff. Now, interestingly, Mai noted that the sauce didn't need to be too sweet. And so a recipe was concocted that considered the tastes of others. All so that yesterday I could clank a spoon and, and scrape every last drop of homemade sauce out of the small glass mason jar and into a saucepan so that I could heat it up and then pour it on top of the pancakes that my wife made for our family for breakfast. But even then, the process was not done because Dee was adamant that the jar must come back to her because it's still a good jar and it has a future that might hold the prospect of fig jam or strawberry jelly or even more blueberry sauce. Yes, to eat is always to be bound up in a relational matrix of labor and care and gratitude. The danger with urban life, and especially in a post-agrarian society, is that we can forget that our lives are almost always dependent on the sacrificial work and gifts of others. Unfortunately, we live in a time when it can be all too easy to forget the many hands and the whole lives of others who labored so that we can eat and have our fill there is a subtle reminder that every bite we take is a part of a more extensive system in which we are reliant on the gifts of others to be sustained and nourished. What I've been trying to describe is that there are social and relational implications to the life of God abiding in us. At the table, we learn of our neediness and of the fact that we are always contingent people. Beyond this, I'm convinced that God abiding with us ought to remind us that every place, every person, and exchange we have is something sacred. 
I love the words of Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who says this in his short book, Being Christian, quote, To take the world in the Eucharistic elements is to recognize the possibility of the world's transfiguration into a world of justice and peace. All places, all people, all things have about them an unexpected sacramental depth. What Williams names is that there is always something holy at hand if we look at the world around us with the abiding perspective of God. All of this ought to prompt questions like, what difference is God abiding in us making in your life? How are your values and actions being reshaped? How are you looking at the world differently or freshly because you believe that God is in you and in your neighbor? Much of the time, answering these questions will be a mix of both hopefulness and responsibility. There is a weightiness to the Christian life because we acknowledge that there is always holy potential waiting to be realized in you, in others, and in all of creation. In reading a book by Disciples of Christ preacher and teacher Mike Graves, I was reminded of a story from Annie Dillard's beautiful meditation, Holy the Firm. In this book, Dillard suggests to the leaders at the church where she worshiped that they consider using wine instead of grape juice. Uh, the leaders agreed, but left it up to Dillard to purchase the communion wine. At first, Dillard's beget tasked with this buying the wine began to send her into a tailspin. She obsessed, how can I buy the communion wine? Who am I to buy the communion wine? Someone has to buy the communion wine. She wondered if she should go into the store wearing a robe. Uh, are there holy grapes here? Is there holy ground? Is there anything holy here? She concluded, there are no holy grapes. There is no holy ground, nor is there anyone but us. She settled for a California red and slipped it into her backpack. In other words, as the title of her book suggests, all that is firm, all that we can see and touch and smell is holy. The ordinary is holy. Everything is holy. My friends, to share in the communion meal is not gruesome or grotesque. We remember in the bread and cup that the self-giving way of God is coming very near to us, so close that we can taste it. We remember and acknowledge that all belong at the table. There are no hierarchies, preferences, or best seats. The life of Christ is with and for us all. We are here to receive a common meal and to share our lives together. And in doing so, we come to recognize the potential for the world to be transfigured and transformed by God. At this table and at every table, each time we break the bread and lift the cup, we recognize and proclaim what is good, hopeful, and holy, precisely because God abides with us. Amen.